why do his writings resonate today? What, 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 well, how did that popularity transcend time and continue where, you know, again, you know, Huckleberry Finn, I mean, this is just iconic, but popular, people read Mark Twain. They do read Mark Twain. They really like Mark Twain. Um, I think, first of all, his language. I mean, people will say to you, oh, he's so funny. And that's absolutely true. But he's funny because he has this extraordinary grasp of the English language. And that comes from all that reading. And also a consciousness of the orality of the language, that how it is spoken, as opposed to how it may be written. And he, it's, he, his fluidity, his imaginativeness, his fearlessness in many ways in creating words out of other words is what puts him as maybe number one of prose stylists in the United States. With that, there's this biting humor. There's his ability to portray. I mean, I don't think we give enough thought to his landscape descriptions, his sense of place, because he can create some of the most lyrical passages. His penetration, he had an acute sense of the human condition and he portrayed it through individual characters. So there's something you can recognize somewhere in everything. And his critiques. He, he, he was a sharp critic of especially American society, but about the human society, especially as he got older. What, what is your favorite work by Twain and, and why? I don't have a favorite. Okay. People ask me that all the time. Okay. You know, Twain is an episodic writer. It's very hard to do like a new critical analysis of him because he just writes in episodes. And I think I tend to think of him that way. That for me, there are parts, passages of many, many books that live in the back of my mind. And they come through to me when I'm looking at something new, when I'm speaking. It's passages. And if you put those passages together, then you have Twain in, in its, his glory, either as a lyricist, a humorist, or a critic. So for me, it's a, it's a pastiche. It's, it's, it's the whole picture. It's, it's, it's all of it. It's all of it. It's all of it. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. You, you had mentioned, and I, I think I had read um, in, in your book that like many, Twain evolved, and when it came to issues like slavery, there was an evolution in, in his thinking and in his attitudes. Um, how did he generally view, 
if we can even discuss this, the Jewish people in his early years and did that change over time? Was that his speech? Sorry, you're breaking up. I think you can track Twain's evolution with Jews in the same way you can track his evolution with African-Americans. And let me start by saying Twain never changed his mind about Native Americans. He was pretty much always contemptuous about Native Americans. And he never met a Native American, at least to his knowledge. In contrast, he met many African Americans and later in his life, many Jews. So in the beginning, Twain was a knee-jerk anti-Semite, like virtually everyone in his environment. But later, as he lived in cities, and especially during periods like in 1898-99, he spent, I think, about 14 months in Vienna. And the circles he circulated through were full of Jews like Sigmund Freud. Doctors, lawyers, writers, philosophers, scientists. So he was very involved with these people. Just as earlier in the United States, he had met African-Americans like Frederick Douglass, people who were educated, who were cultured, who were working, who had ambitions and competence. And this changed him in both cases. So that the, I think the Vienna time was the most important. Later, after he came back, he got involved with the Educational Alliance in New York City. So he was circulating around with Jews all the time which doesn't necessarily mean they were his best friends, though his daughter did marry one, Asip Gabrilowicz. So, and he welcomed him as a member of the family. So he really changed. And, and, and what led him to write um, the essay Consumed the Jews? And how would you describe that essay? That essay was written in the wake of his time in Vienna. So one of the things he had written in Vienna and published, I think, in Harper's Magazine in 1898 is called Stirring Times in Austria. And it was a description of the factionalism that was going on in the Austrian parliament and in the society at large. It was a very fraught time in Austria, that period. 
and Twain was witness to it. So he went to meetings of Parliament. He sat in the visitors' galleries. And he wrote about it. And one of the things he said in it was, you know, they're all fighting. Uh, nobody can agree about anything. And so they scapegoat the Jews. That's what they always do. If there's problems and you can't find the culprit, grab a Jew. Just like in the United States, you lynch a black man. And someone wrote to him afterwards and said, well, why is this? There are no Jews in the Austrian parliament. None of them had anything to do with the problems they're having. So why scapegoat those? And that's the essay concerning the Jews, which many Jews read and said, with friends like these, you don't need enemies. Because, and this is where, you know, Twain learned, he changed, but it's very hard to shed yourself of inherited prejudice, deep, deeply held images. So whereas Jews were commonly attacked as mercenaries, money pinching, Twain said they're rich because they're smart. They're smarter than the Christians. In other words, he he kept the same place. Even though he'd been living in New York, he saw the immigrants, you know, people without money. You know, 30 years later, Mike Gold would write a, a novel called Jews Without Money that's about Jewish immigrants in the city, dirt poor. Twain ignored that in concerning the Jews. So it's a very problematic essay. It still is. First time I read it, it was like, ugh, I really wish I didn't hadn't read this. What, what, is, what is your message you've been teaching for, for so many years, obviously encountering many, many young people? What is the message that you try to bring to young people, try to teach them, um, you know, when you teach about Twain? You know, I, I look at my kids and, you know, it's just... You know, which which they're probably never going to read because who reads? You know, you know. They tell me, Dad, who who reads books anymore? You know, who who reads? But I'm sure you encountered. And they do read, but I'm sure you encounter you know many students who who, who do read high intellectual level. But what's the message you try to to give them teaching about? I'm glad you put it that way because here's my answer. I, I try not to give messages. Okay. I don't necessarily think it's my place because too often pedagogical messages, especially on the, on, on the college level, means I want you to think about this the way I think about it. Instead, what I've tried to evolve, and this is me changing. I mean, I certainly started out with messages, interpretations, which I expected kids to spit back on the test. Now what I try to do is give them a toolkit. 
I want them to learn how to read perceptively. And so one of the questions I would ask when they're reading somebody like Twain is, how does he do that? It's a question I've been asking myself my whole career with Twain. You know, you read a line and it's just as funny as it can be. How does he do this? What is it about the language? So we talk about nouns, verbs. Twain said, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is like the difference between the lightning and the lightning bug. And so I, I use Twain as a way of talking about and encouraging them to examine language very closely. And then I ask them to bring a variety of historical and theoretical methods to bear on the text. My students do a lot of history. They take a book and they place it in time. They look at reviews. They look at authors writing about that book and letters, whatever, so that they can get a sense of where it entered into the conversation in its own time. And then, depending on the level of the class, I teach them some theory so that they can have some ways of coming at the text. For instance, Bakhtin is very useful for Twain because he's all about disruption. He understands the social model and it works well with Twain. But also you can deconstruct, you can do a lot of things. So I, in the best case scenario, students leave my class prepared to read purposefully both Twain and other literatures. Do, do you, are you, are you, you stop teaching? You're ready, you retired from teaching? You miss it, you miss it. I miss, I don't miss grading papers. Okay. I don't miss faculty meetings, uh, committee meetings. I do miss colleagues and collegiality and I miss the classroom. I miss the interaction with people, especially young people. Um, and it's, uh, you know, with co Corona and the isolation, I see fewer and fewer right. young people. Uh, and so I do miss the teaching element. Yes. Okay, this, this, has, this has been fascinating. I know we only touched the tip of the iceberg. I don't know if we use such an expression or not. That's a good one or not. But, but um, really, the, just, just a, a, a sense of, 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 of Mark Twain and, and, and your, your research on Mark Twain. And thank you very, very much. It was, was insightful. And, thank you for and, asking. And interesting, and very interesting. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was fun. Okay. <laughs>